it's, it's a nine figure number, uh, low nine figures. It's it cash flows over six figures a month. So after my debt and all my expenses and all that kind of stuff. So that's not too, that's not too shabby, man. It's not too shabby. No, I good. think you're doing okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Action Academy podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Ryan Bowden. Long time coming, buddy. Long time coming. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to hear. Good to hear, man. You just came fresh off of a Costa Rica trip. So you guys jacked my trip before we even did it over with the Go Abundance guys. So man, walk us through how was the trip? How was your little masterminding experience here? And why should somebody join a mastermind A and B go on any of these little small, more intimate trips? Yeah, no, it was great. We were there for seven days. I think it was 13 of us. I knew one guy which I like doing. I like going to places. I know the guys, especially with Go Bunts, are going to be like-minded. It was really good. Awesome vibes. When you're there with 13 guys, you get to know them real well. And just the constant conversations, like great ideas. Just You learn a lot about yourself and learn about other great ideas from other guys that just think a little bit differently than you. And they think like you, but also think differently than you sometimes. No, man, that was great, man. I, I like the small, intimate gatherings better than the larger ones for sure. So an exercise that you guys did that we're both familiar with, but I'd like for you to introduce it to the audience is you guys did your life happiness index, correct? Yep. Sweet. So walk the audience through what a life happiness index is and go abundance and then how you guys work together to improve it. Yeah, I still play around with mine. There's all the different categories from family time to generosity to health and fitness to diet and all the different metrics you can go down. So what what our practice was like, all right, what is a 10 for you? Let's say diet, right? And diet for me, a 10 for 10, let's say for the week is me getting up. I try to fast. I try not to drink any, let's say no alcohol for the week. I'll saw in the morning, I'll cold plunge, I'll drink a gallon of water, et cetera, et cetera. If I do all those things for the week, that's a 10. And -hmm. then if I don't do that, it's a nine or an eight or whatever. And that was a practice that we did. And then it goes on from romance to spending times with my kids and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So for people listening, it's like you have all these different categories of life that you focus on that make up your ultimate happiness. And we rank them one through 10 for each category. So what he's talking about is, okay, cool. Let's actually clarify and write down on paper, like what a 10 out of 10 looks like. So for your relationships, what's a 10 out of 10 look like for adventure, for passive income, all this different stuff. So at the end, you combine all the numbers and you get what's called your life happiness index. So last time I did it, mine was a 9.1 out of 10. So my ones that were struggling at the time were family and contribution. But yeah, man, that was an awesome trip. I enjoyed watching y'all from a distance and I'm excited to dive into you today. Before we dissect, you know, where you came from, who are you today? Who is Ryan Bowden today? Ryan Bowden is a laid back real estate investor that has transitioned to a fully retail triple net portfolio in over I don't know, six states or seven states. 
and I have one employee and I've been really enjoying life, man. I've been traveling a whole lot and uh, still looking to do deals and work, but I'm not grinding as hard as I used to. So what's the portfolio look like today? So you said it's all triple net lease commercial properties. So yep. what's the total assets under management? What does that cash flow and everything look like today so that we can have an idea of where we're heading as we go backwards? My portfolio is over nine figures. I don't have all the exact numbers because every freaking every month it changes, but it's, it's a nine figure number, uh, low nine figures. It's it cash flows over six figures a month. So after my debt and all my expenses and all that kind of stuff. So that's not too, that's not too shabby, man. It's not too shabby. No, I good. think you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. So let's walk it backwards, man, because this isn't this hasn't always been this way. A question I specifically want to start with you is about commercial real estate because I feel as if it's almost a graduation process from single family to maybe going a multi. And then I feel the advanced degree, like the black belt of real estate investing is commercial investing, right? So if somebody's listening to this, would you advise that they go down that similar path where they almost do like the stack system, they do single family, multi, and then eventually get to commercial? Or is this an asset class in a category where looking back with knowing what you know today, you'd say, Damn, Ryan, you should have just done that from the get-go. I think, so what I'm doing now needs a lot of capital, right? I have to have a lot of reserves to prepare for. If I lose a tenant, I got to do major repairs. Everything is just unbelievably expensive. And doing with multifamily and single family, you can easily add value, easily refinance, easily pull out cash. That's It's hard not to start there, realistically. Unfortunately, right now, multifamily and everything is stupid expensive. But you can still force that appreciation, force that value and pull out cash and keep on rolling a lot easier than what I'm doing. Yeah. So you would still recommend everybody follow the more traditional path and then upgrade once they have their cash reserves? Yeah. Especially if they don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Even if you buy a value add retail center, it's still going to cost a butt ton of money. It's Mm -hmm. just it is. So yeah, I, I would say go that route. Go get your get dirty first. Go get your hands messy and figure out the, the joys of real estate in a cheaper way. Yeah. So let's dissect your joys of real estate, man. Walk us through the journey. So today we see you with a nine-figure commercial portfolio, but how did this come to be? Graduate, got my accounting degree, got my master's, went straight to oil and gas audit, Houston, and got laid off in 08, slash fired. No idea what I was going to do. Came back to where I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Got my real estate license, did that for a year, and I borrowed forty grand from my parents and bought my first. It was actually two fourplexes. They were $100,000 each. Old, old as crap, beat up, just junk. <laughs> but they were cash flow and they were good. And I, they, I never read a real estate book. I never had a mentor. My uncle was a real estate agent, but I just freaking winged it. And... Uh, it was good and bad. If I would have had followed your Action Academy or something like that, I would probably have been a lot farther along in my life. But I'm thankful for what I've had to experience. But that's how it started. I bought that, borrowed the money from my parents. I fixed it up and I figured out how to cash out refi. Then I bought a 12 unit. Then I bought an 18 unit. Then I bought a 24 unit. And I was a good spot right there. And I had all in my one little city. Like I said, 60 plus units. I forgot the exact amount. And then I met a, I got married to my wife at the New Orleans and I sold everything I had and she had a good business. She was making good money. 
And I sold everything. I had to move to New Orleans and I had to start all over again. And uh, so funny, the properties reading, sold everything because I was not going to be able to operate them really well living four hours away. Wow. I was, okay. I was self-managing everything. I was self-managing. I was doing all the repairs for the most part. Besides like HVAC and crap like that. So I was doing it all. So that was my first, uh, I guess, leap or jump up. So I, so I sold everything. I took the cash. I still didn't, I didn't know anything about cost segs at this point or anything like that. So I moved there. I had my cash. Probably had, I don't know, 800000 700000 in cash. Got married. My wife had a good tax return. So we bought... With her tax returns, I bought a 40 unit in Baton Rouge. And that was a great property. And then my next one was a 72 unit. Next one, then that was my first, my second jump. I took on a partner. And then me and him bought a 180 unit complex. So kept on, kept on getting bigger. And I bought the 40 unit. I'm like, oh, this is easy. I can do something a little mm-hmm. bigger. And I bought the 72. I'm like, oh, this is easy. Let's buy the bigger one. And I kept on going bigger and bigger. And then I, over the years, I grew that to about 1,500 units total at the highest point. And I probably bought and sold 2,000 plus over the years. And that, but that was my highest point from a unit perspective of owning units in three different states. And so did you ever syndicate for any of these? Or were these mostly just with yourself and other partners, like just a handful of partners? It was one partner. I probably owned 85% of everything. So, yeah, my one partner, we were 50-50 on the 180 unit. And then we were 50-50 on a 190 unit. And then, so that was like, I don't know, I'm just out. But I sold that 180, then I bought a, it was just, we were constantly moving deals around. So it was, it wasn't just, like I said, I probably bought and sold 2,000, 2,500 units over my multifamily career. Man, yeah. So that's an insane kind of capital snowball that grows and grows as it rolls down the hill. Looking back, are you glad that you did it that way? Or is there any advice that you would give to somebody that's getting started, maybe buying their first 30 unit or buying their first 40 unit? If you were to give them advice, would, like, how would you advise on the capital strategy for taking down one of these properties? Would you do it how you did it all over again? Or looking back, would you have tackled the, that a bit differently? I still do like my creative financing strategy now where I'll go in and I'll try to get the seller to hold a little second, five or 10 second. I'll make them, I'll ask, hey, I want a six, 8% real estate commission on every deal that I buy. I can't do the seconds anymore because my sellers are like institutional REITs and funds. And they just don't do that anymore. But uh, yeah, I still try to be creative on the financing, 100%. My, my rule is I always trust my numbers. I don't care how much I like the property. I don't care how beautiful it is. I don't care if it's my this next door to me. If the numbers don't make sense, I'm not going to force it. I would either try to either buy one of the two things. I either try to buy a building that's low in occupancy or lower in occupancy but the capex isn't really bad or the occupancy is really good, but it needs some capex. I try not to take them on both at the exact same time. Okay. So solve one problem at a time, one specific problem to focus on. You don't want to take on like a property that just is just completely wrecked. Unless you're getting so cheap, it's just mind freaking. Like This is the best deal in the world. But man, if you buy a deal where the capex is just like the roof is shot, the parking lot's destroyed, the owner is not taking care of anything, you're going to get yourself a headache. It's usually if you can get one or the other that needs a little bit of love, it's just not a destroyed process. It's not going to just not only 
just wipe away your cash, but not just destroy your energy. I know there's guys that just buy vacant buildings and then do complete gut jobs. And I, I appreciate that. But and I've done that before. I know what kind of toll it took on me from a mental and, and growth perspective, because I can. This property needs a new roof and every do the parking lot. I can get that, get two contractors, get that going, work on the next deal. A lot easier than complete gut jobs, complete lease ups. It's a lot more work. Yeah. So how did you form the back end as you were scaling up? Because what I've seen on this podcast and from a lot of people that we are friends with is people will scale up, but then their operations and like the back end, the property management side of it will start to falter or they don't have the infrastructure there to support the unit count. So how did you scale up your back end as you were buying and doing this crazy acquisition process over this period of years. And what was the time frame between you buying this first couple and then you getting married, moving to New Orleans and getting up to this 2000 mark? Two questions. Yeah, the multifamily journey was about nine years. Okay. Eight to nine years, 10 years, plus or minus, you know, from there. I decided to start selling all of my multifamily when COVID hit. So whenever COVID was at 2019, so maybe it was eight years, my, my multifamily journey. And that's a whole different, that's a whole nother story. But I was trying to buy in, in, in certain markets. Like I was buying, I had probably four or 500 units in Baton Rouge, right? And then I would buy another complex. Luckily, it was big enough where it had its own staff already on site. I would take on the staff, see how they were, and replace as needed. Same thing as when I was buying in North Louisiana and Shreveport. I was buying deals that were big enough that already had their own site staff. I would keep the staff, let them mold with how we were running. And if they worked great, if not, we would replace them. That was how I did it. It wasn't always perfect, but it was at least a way to keep it at least somewhat stable as we figured out the, the property once we bought it. About what unit count of a deal do you find a stable property management and a stable internal team already in place? It goes with how much the rents are. If you're buying a class A that the rents are 2000 2500 obviously you can do a much smaller unit count, but... For the, I was buying C plus, B minus deals, more C plus. I would need at least 80, 100 units to, for it to make sense for me. Sweet. And then what was your buy box when you were buying them? This is back in the day, right? But my goal for C plus properties, my, my simple formula just to even look at it was I would get the gross rents. Let's say the sales price was five million bucks, right? The rents would have to be twenty percent of the sales price. So I would have to have twenty percent gross rents for me to even look at it. Okay. Would that still say would that rule of thumb still stick today with what you would be looking at in multifamily? Or is that 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 completely changed? It'd be a lot tighter. And it's much harder to figure out now, especially with insurance and everything, especially where I live. Insurance was reasonable. Now then the hurricane live, and everything came. Oh, dude, it is. Actually, again, anything on the Gulf Coast, Florida, anything is just, you wouldn't believe what the premiums we get on here. It's just, it's horrible, beyond horrible. So it's hard. Uh, the underwriting is a lot more stringent. The numbers are a lot tighter. Like my numbers for when I was buying multi-thing was like, it was incredible. I was buying, if I wasn't buying a 10 cap, I was like, what am I doing? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's before the value add. Yeah. Yeah. Those days are, those days are gone for the time being. Looking back, so we'll pin the chapter of multifamily here in a second. But first, let's look back on some of the failures and lessons along the way. In your acquisition and disposition of 2,000, give or take, units, 
what are two or three major failures or lessons that you drew out of that that you can share with the audience that's going through their acquisition process and their nine-year sprint right now? Understanding the debt world is key, right? Because real estate's a debt. Multifamily is good. You're trying to get your cash flow, but the real money multifamily is the cash out, refi, the sales, all that. To say, oh, I want to buy 200 units or replace my income, it's, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. Um, because just so many things can happen. So many CapEx items, things can happen and your budgeted cash flow every month can just change so drastically with multifamily. COVID come in, it's throwing another eviction ban on you and bam, you have headaches. I've experienced tons of regional lenders, CMBS, Fannie Freddie. I looked into HUD and it was all very, it was all huge learning experiences. And I'll give you an example. I bought a property in Mississippi. It was 280 units, okay? I paid $17,000 a door. It was 95% occupied. Great. It was a light tech property, a low-income tax credit property. So I paid, let's say I paid $6 million bucks for it. I bought the regional bank and praised for 6.2, okay? Three months later, I didn't do anything to it. I went to a CMBS lender of New York. They use a appraiser out of Atlanta. They appraised it for $9.5 million. I'm like, okay, holy crap, let's do this. All right. What? Oh, yeah. No, they were going to give me 75% on that. 30-year, non-recourse, 5%. Great numbers. Incredible. And then I was talking to another broker. Oh, won't you? Won't you? This is a great HUD product. So I called a HUD broker, one of the largest in the country. They're going to give me a 40-year loan, 2.4% interest. They hired an appraiser out of who knows where. They appraised it for $14 million. I didn't do anything to it. $14 million. And they're going to give me 80% on that six months after I bought it. Okay. So, so the, obviously, so I went that route. So I went that route, right? And but then going through the HUD process, it was absolutely horrible. I lost like two hundred grand. I backed out. I didn't do it because they wanted me to do a whole bunch of work. But anyways, if I would have gone through that and all worked out, I could have made quite a bit of money just by understanding the debt product that was available to this asset. So when you start getting bigger assets that these bigger lenders want, you can make some serious money. Can you do like a three to five minute overview about the different debt products that do exist for these larger assets? For somebody that's listening that maybe doesn't quite understand, maybe they've done like Fannie or Freddie or something like that, and they don't know that all the rest of this even exists. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously your regional lenders, and depending on how big the asset size is, they can handle most of it. Most of them will not go to a 30-year amortization but they're always the easiest to deal with, easiest to close with. It's just, there's no question. But usually they'll do some kind of recourse on it. I think the most common is Fannie and Freddie, right? That's your non-recourse 30-year, usually the lowest rates, usually some good interest only. You do CMBS. Most don't do CMBS just because it is just unbelievably tough to deal with. Whenever things go bad, you got to renegotiate terms. You need a little bit of help. They're just not going to do it. And I had two, I had CMBS loans with my apartments just because what they offered me was unbelievable and it was not fun. And then the granddaddy of them all is HUD. Usually it's a 40 year and it may even be 40 year term, like 40 year fix. I don't remember, but they do, they will push it from a debt service coverage ratio standpoint. I think my DSCR they were offering me was like 1.05. There was no cash flow. You get this, they give you a big chunk of money, you're married to it for, yeah. for who knows how long. And then the regulations and the accounting and all that is just very stringent. But I wasn't willing to take it for how much cash they were willing to cut me for something I only owned for six months. Yeah. 
Exactly. So advice that you would give for new multifamily or new intermediate scaling up into advanced level investor would be learn all about debt, everything you can about debt. Yeah, everything you can. Ask, like I still do this today, right? When I'm doing deals, even on the larger deals I'm working on now, I still call 10, 15, 20 banks at a time per deal. And every bank tells me different information. Oh, we can do this. Oh, we can do this. Oh, I'm like, oh, okay. And I always learn something. I'm like, ah, I should have asked this question. Oh, I should have asked that question. But every bank has a different appetite. Every bank has certain buckets. We spent, we have too much debt on multifamily. We'll do more industrial. Or we have too much industrial. We'll do retail and vice versa. So it's, you never know what they're going to tell you. What are some good general questions that people can ask their banks? What I always do is I go and tell them exactly what I want. Like I tell them I want 25 year RAM. I want 12 months interest only. I want no prepay. I want a half percent origination fees. I tell them exactly what I want. I always push them more than what the standard is. And they tell me what they can do. And like, we can do this and do that. But we can't do this. I'm like, okay, I really want the loan of value to be 80%. I really want my amortization to be 25. And I'll give you a I'll give you three-fourths of a point on origination if you can do the other, other things. Like, okay, everything's in negotiation with regional, arguably any lender, but the regional banks are really up for negotiations. But I straight up tell them what I need. If they can't even get close to what I need, then I just done with them that quick. Is that something that would be feasible for a newer investor that doesn't have the already predetermined established relationship with a local bank? Or is this something that you've done across your investing career where you're just like, hey, I'm Ryan. Here's the deal I've got. I'm going to do a bunch of deals. Here's what I want. Can you do this? Or did you develop the relationships first? And then now you could do that today. It's both. If you bring in a bank, a good piece of asset, a good piece of real estate, a lot of times they want it. These lenders, they make money off of debt. They want the deals. But if you're 600000 in debt, you bring no money, then you're screwed. But if you bring a decent piece of real estate, you're not absolutely broke. You can dictate a little bit. And even better, if you can get, you don't want to push this too hard, but this happens a lot is that like, I'll get a term sheet from one bank. And then I'll, if you can prove you have some kind of term sheet, dude, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm getting. Can y'all beat this? And they'll beat it. And again, you don't want to do it too much because you will piss them off because they'll start beating each other by the quarter point or a tenth of a point here. And then it just gets messy. But uh, again, if you have a good piece of real estate, they'll fight for it. They were, they want it. Yeah. And so you said in the, you said a couple minutes ago that if you were trying to do a cash flow play and you were trying to get out of a job and you were trying, maybe your goal was to get out of your job in 12 months, maybe you're making over $200,000, like you're making good money. You said multifamily probably isn't the best way. Getting that 200 unit property probably isn't the best way to get you out of your job. So looking back now, after doing a bunch of different assets, what would be the best way to get out of your job? Let me, let me give some clarity on that. If let's say you, you quit your W-2, you want to go buy a hundred unit complex and that's it. I want this hundred unit complex, my cash flow. That's it. I'm done. I wouldn't say that. You got to keep on doing deals and doing business. Get that one, cash out refi, get your little bit of cash flow, go do another one. Continue to buy, sell, reinvest, m- make it a job, make it your livelihood. Don't just sit there idly and expect this one property to keep you afloat until you from 40 years from now. Fair. Okay. That's fair. That's a fair point. I was about to say, I was like, that can maybe get them out of their job. I was like, but not to just sit around and do nothing. But that's a common misconception is people think that you want to just leave and do nothing. But I don't think anybody actually wants 
to do that. But so I'm writing a book right now and it's like, that's a whole chapter. I'm like, I don't think anybody, any of us actually just want to do nothing. I right. think we all want to work. We just want to have our choice of what to work on. That's it. Well, dude, I think people like you and me and a lot of others, we're wired a certain way. Right now, Correct. I don't have to work another day in my life, but I would go absolutely freaking insane if I didn't do something, right? Yeah. And this is how we're wired. We're not built and created just, oh, we're making a million dollars a year. We're done. We can go sit on the beach and drink pina coladas every other so It's not going to work that way. And uh, ever. So what's the fun of that? Yeah. And I'm over here right now. I'm in Rome. So it's, the time difference is different. It's 6 o'clock, 6.37 right now in Rome, Italy. And I've been traveling for going on a month and a half right now over yep. here in Europe so far. And if I was just traveling and not doing podcasts and not working on my business, I think I'd lose my mind. Sure. I don't know what I would do. Seriously, I freaking love this. This is in this, this is insanely fun for me and talking to you and learning about you guys and it's 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 awesome and it helps people too. So, let's put the pin in the chapter multifamily and now pivot. So, COVID hits. I was on the same calls you were in in Go Abundance when everyone was talking about like when COVID hit, everyone thought, "Okay, this is showtime. We've been waiting for this." Like it batten down the hatches. It's about to get ugly. It's about to get red. What ended up happening was the opposite. Everything took off. But walk us through your decision in selling your multifamily and why you picked up commercial. Sure. So COVID kit. So again, most of my units were light tech, low income. The assets were really nice. They're 15 years or 20 years or newer, but the people were lower. And when COVID kit, that income bracket just locked down on the eviction ban. So all my properties were in the red, all of them. I was losing money month after month. It was freaking horrible. What was the nail in the coffin was my largest property, largest single property in Texas got smashed by a hurricane. Okay. And hit it. The buildings were fine. The buildings were okay for the most part, but 40 trees fell down. Okay. And most of them didn't hit my buildings. Okay. You're saying, okay, that's not that bad. But since it didn't touch any of my buildings, insurance didn't cover it. And since there was a billion trees down, the tree guys were charging an arm and a leg. Long story short, it was like $300,000 just in tree removal. Okay. That didn't include all the sewer lines that were ripped up out of the ground from all the trees pulling up from all the roots. And the building is fine. Oh, the buildings are fine. And I had no interest when cover it. And you're punching air right now. You're like, are you kidding me? Oh, no, I was freaking out. And so that came, everybody moves out for two months. Nobody's paying rent. This is a 200-unit apartment complex. But that property was on a CMBS loan, non-recourse. I pulled some money out like just before. I'm like, you know what? This is why they have non-recourse loans. So I handed the keys back to the bank on that property. And I'm like, you know, I, I think, and I started seeing the cap rates on multifamily starting to compress. Right. I'm like, dude, I'm like, this is my time to get out. This is my, I've done my, my, my due time. I made that decision right then. Whenever I decide was before I decided to give the property back to the bank, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to transfer, I'm going to transfer to retail because I was looking at different, I've had two or three retail properties before. They're nothing like they're good properties and they were great. I randomly were third party managed and they just spit out constant cash flow. I hardly ever heard about them. And I'm like, you know what? 
I see how these are running and I was looking at some what's going on because COVID, they shut down a bunch of the retail guys. So everybody was scared to death of retail. So those cap rates just shot through the freaking roof. I was buying eight cap, nine cap, 10 cap deals on institutional great assets. Your tractor supplies, your Ross, TJ Maxx, Hobby Lobby, all those. And I decided to go all in and I did that. And over the next two to three years, I bought and sold a bunch of real estate. Yeah. So when you're looking at these properties, like what is the what are the main differences between walk us through that transition process? So you're selling your multifamily, you got cash, now you're moving into retail. How are things different for an investor that's maybe considering the pivot to retail and they're not quite sure what they're getting into yet? Sure. I think for retail, you got to understand a few things. So my first property I bought after I made the decision was a property in Coleman, Alabama, about 30 minutes south of Huntsville. I don't say the middle of nowhere, but it's a small market, right? And the tenant was a tractor supply, a Planet Fitness, and a bargain hunt. It was an oh, old so that's table. the whole town. You're good. They're never leaving. <laughs> Dude, it was in the middle of town. It was an old Kmart that went to crap. They run it. They threw on brand new roofs, new parking lots, new electrical, 10-year leases. I'm like, what am I missing? I saw their, I saw their sales. I'm like, this is it. And it was like one of the best performing Planet Fitnesses in the country. All I mean, this is freaking awesome. What am I missing? And it was like an eight and a half cap. And uh, I think for retail, what you really have to understand is the big ticket items, like the roofs and the parking lots. And also a big thing in retail is called co-tenancy. And the best way I can describe that is like you see a big building and let's say there's a Walmart, right? And there's always a bunch of small ne- shops next to Walmart. Let's say there's Ross, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, all that, right? All those guys usually will have a co-tenancy language and they're at least saying, if Walmart ever leaves, our rent gets cut in half for a period of time. And after that period of time, if Walmart has not come back or a similar like tenant, then we can either terminate our lease or go back to paying full rent. So understanding co-tenancy is a huge part of a big box retail. Then also understanding the leases in regards to what they will cover. Because everybody here is triple net, right? Oh, the tenant will cover all the expenses. And like, no, dude, it's... That's why these leases are 30, 40 pages long. They will outline in two pages of what they will cover, what they won't cover. Usually they'll cover the taxes. Usually they'll cover the insurance. But where you have to really understand is what about air conditioning? Because air conditioning is really expensive and commercial. They will cover the repairs. Will they cover the replacement up to how much dollar amount? Parking lot repairs, roof repairs, all those kind of things you have to dissect. Yeah. So you have to be way more thorough with your leases, Ben. Yeah. I mean, it's all the lease. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when you're buying these nicer centers, the uh, sellers are professional. They'll send you a Dropbox link, man. And it has everything in there. It's really well organized. The brokers will have a really nice OM with lease abstracts really, really break it down. But if man, if you can figure out the high ticket dollar items, you can understand the lease. You can understand like the, the CAM, the common area maintenance and how they're built back to the tents. You can figure out pretty quickly if this is a particularly good deal or not. So how do you leverage debt on retail properties? What does that process look like? Very similar to my multifamily. Really? So just the same loan products? Yeah. Yeah. I'll go to my, re- all my debt right now is with regional banks. I got my 25 year loan. Five, I try to put down 20%, 25% for 12 months interest only. Pretty much the exact same thing. 
And yeah. then I'll eventually move those over to life insurance. Life insurance is another loan product. I guess I'm sure they do multifamily, but that's just another one. I mean, there's a bunch of lenders out there, but just the most normal ones, obviously the regional CMBS. Life insurance is bigger than uh, retails, but I do the yeah. same thing, man. I, the same lenders that had my multifamily, I went straight to them with my retail and they arguably like the retail product better than the multifamily. Yeah. So you're just like, okay, cool. I've already got everyone established. Let's rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, they, they really like having the financials. I'll say, hey, here's this tenant. Here's their sales. If they can go, especially if they're publicly traded, they can go see how they're performing on. They can get their, like the corporate financials. They freaking love that. They love that. So it's a little bit harder with mom and pops, but if you can get sales from the mom and pops, that's really beneficial as well. Sweet. So what's the game plan in the future? So three, five, 10 years, what are you working towards? I would be happy if I could do two to three larger size deals a year. I have not done anything in eight months just because pricing with rates skyrocketing, it's hard to, my margins are just too tight right now. So I'm just patiently waiting, building my cash reserves, still being aggressive, looking out there. I've put out probably 30 offers. None of them have stuck, but still good learning. I'm talking to brokers. I'm still talking to lenders and just to stay in contact with everybody, just waiting for that thing to happen. I was talking to one of my favorite brokers yesterday. And he's still doing deals with the funds and the REITs that have to deploy some cash. But he's like, dude, just be patient. I think just it's going to loosen up where the deals that make sense are going to start popping up again. But I'm excited about it. I'm still excited about the field or the sector. I don't plan on deviating from that. I was still I was talking to one of my buddies in GoBunnits too, like about partnering with him to do some more multifamily, but I don't want to run it. I don't want to be the guy anymore. So that's my game plan right now. There you go, man. I love it. And that's what I'm doing right now. Like right now, the only thing I'm focused on is Action Academy. Like this is it. And I'm just building up cash reserves and then we'll look and see what happens next year and then go from there because there's going to be opportunity. Like commercials getting wrecked. Retail's going to have more opportunities popping up. Like multifamily will start getting a bit better. We'll see. Rock and roll from that point, man. I know everybody has their own path and game plan, but I'm all about stay in your lane and focus on what you're good at. And 10x say what? Stack cash. Yeah, stack cash, man. If you like, it's like what you're doing. You're trying to grow your brand, get bigger and bigger. I may try to do bigger and bigger retail deals. And uh, yeah. Love it, man. So where can people find out more about you, connect with you online, potentially partner with you on deals? Where can they find you? Mainly Facebook. That's where I, from a social media standpoint, that's where I spend most of my time. So just Ryan Bowden on Facebook? Yeah, I think I'm on, I think I'm Ryan Daniel Bowden on Facebook. So there you go. All right. Yeah, so telling us slide up into Ryan Daniel Bowden's DMs, just Lake Charles, Louisiana, boy. <laughs> Check out <laughs> right, Facebook dude. and you got it right there. Dude, awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. You gave us a masterclass in multifamily and retail. So greatly appreciate it, man. I'm excited to see what you do next. No problem, man. All right. Heck yeah. Guys, it's been Ryan and Brian with the Action Academy Podcast, signing off. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.